Hello and welcome to another episode of the Citizens of Lorcana podcast, a podcast where we invite you to be a part of their world. We're your host, Jared, James, and Adara. Today we are joined by Scott Mines. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Citizens of Lorcana podcast. I'm your host, Jared Hymas, and I'm joined today by co-host extraordinaire James and the Lorcana clerk, Adara. Last week, we had a chance to visit with Steadfast, where we talked about set three initial impressions. We also had a little bonus episode for you, where James and Adara chatted with Jedi Geek Girl about their favorite cards from the um, Sapphire, Steel, and Ruby inks. And that was part two of a series they did with Jedi Geek Girl, where they talked about Amber, Amethyst, and Emerald on Jedi Geek Girl's podcast. So if you haven't had a chance... To check any of those out, we have several hours worth of content for you to enjoy. So today we are joined by a very special guest. You probably know him from his articles on TCG Player. It's Scott Helling Mines. Mines. Hey, <laughs> welcome, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're so glad to have you on. I mean, our paths have crossed on Twitter a lot, but I don't think we've ever taken the time to sit down and chat. So super excited to have you on. No, it's my pleasure to be here. It's uh, it's kind of one of the negative side effects of being mostly written content these days as opposed to video content. Is There's not quite as much crossover as there used to be, um, and you don't get so many chances to make public appearances. So very happy to have a chance. Yeah, happy to have you on. So we like to start our podcast with a segment we call Deck Tech and Specs. So the new set has been out for a week. I know, I've seen your articles. You've been tinkering. You've been theory crafting. <laughs> so let me ask you. If you're going to locals this week and had all the cards you wanted, so you had a full play set of every card, what are you taking? So that depends on my locals, weirdly enough, because if I'm trying to win or if I'm trying to have fun, those are two very different choices, depending on, on what I'm I'm going to play. Um, if I'm trying to pick up prizes, a, a lot of the early success I've been having in Into the Inklands has been... Uh, Emerald-centric. I'm going to say Emerald Amethyst, Emerald Steel. Um, they're two of my favorite contenders right now. Uh, but for fun, I've been working on on some Amber Amethyst lists based around Padita um, from, from Into the Inklands, who is a card I'm a really big fan of, uh, alongside Piglet and Madam Mim Snake. Um, and so I would probably continue tinkering with that until uh, my fingers go numb. <laughs> Well, those Ursulas are so good in Emerald. I can yeah. see why you'd want to <laughs> run those. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite the card. We're already seeing a bit of an uptick in the copies of Smash again, uh, just to try and make sure that uh, she doesn't run away with a game by herself. I yeah. love hearing the Amber Amethyst getting some love. My current deck from set two I run is Amber Amethyst, and I definitely want to tech it up for the new set. So I'm happy yeah. to hear Perdita getting some love. I think there's a lot of underexplored space in the color combination. Um, people kind of assume it's the hyper aggro lists we saw very early on in in, in uh, Ink Two meta with all these Pinocchios and stuff. And uh, then there's me, just like you know, I can play Hades and pick up a Madame Mim Fox, and then use the Madame Mim Fox to pick up the Hades. And I don't need to win the game; I can just play forever. And and then uh, yeah, uh, we spiral down a corridor pretty quickly from there. <laughs> nice. I, I love it. So. It's probably too early in the season to uh, give a very qualified answer to this, but what are the good matchups for your uh, Emerald decks, and what are you looking out for? I mean, maybe okay. we could just talk about the ink specifically. 
Yeah, what what sure. does Emerald match up good against and what does it need to look out for? So typically Emerald's problems have always kind of stemmed from uh, not being able to keep stuff on the board. Uh, em- Emerald is very board-centric ink in the way that it plays. And so uh, staring down piles of Tinkerbells and grab your swords and, and be prepared tend to make you quite sad pretty quickly. Um, thankfully, there is some new tools uh, in Into the Inklands to kind of mitigate that problem. Um, the two-cost Ursula, um, the, the regular deceiver, not the one that deceives all, um, as much as they are closely named, um, is very, very good at shutting down a lot of those problems. Um, but she is your main kind of linchpin to doing so uh, for those those problematic songs. So uh, while I think your matchup has gotten better into those types of decks, I'm still not sure it's particularly fantastic. Great. Thank you. Appreciate no that insight. <laughs> I, I'm so happy with little very i mean it's it's really little the, the you mentioned the deceiver and the dece- deceiver of all just little things like that we're like oh hey on turn two here's deceiver ursula it, you know she's mean but then the coming up next turn is the deceiver of all yeah yeah how it's very uncommon in card games for us to see a character progression arc in the space of one card within the set um they are literally next to each other in set number and everything else like we've told a whole story in the space of one card like it's it's, it's pretty pretty cool and i will mix their names up for the rest of time type the wrong one in articles forever uh but they are both very very good and i expect them to see a lot of play I want to see the progression of the Simbas because we've gotten so many Simbas, rightful heir, rightful king. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to the, uh, the the Floodborne Simbas where he's the bad guy. That's that's the kind of one I'm keeping my eyes open for. Floodborne Simbas not going to happen. I'm convinced of it. Mm. Yeah, we've got like I probably will. I'm we've just saying like 82 like Simbas and, and no <laughs> Floodborne. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, eventually I've got to be able to build the whole deck out of Simbas, and they can't all be story set, like story realistic. You've got to give me some something special to uh, to throw up there. It can't just be ninety nine Dalmatians. We need ninety nine Simbas. <laughs> there you go. All right. So uh, one of your tweets, uh, I recall, was something like uh, a couple of years ago. I was doing this or that, and now I write about TCGs for a living. So let's hear about how you went. Uh, yeah. To this. It's a it's an interesting story, really, um, and not always a happy one. It's it's a, it's a bit strange. So I was I spent a, a good few years working in the film and television industry. It's kind of where I I first went into leaving university. Um, so I got a lot of work there, and a lot of my priority in those spaces was kind of uh, covering um, people's stories. I like telling stories. I love people being able to share what's happened in their lives and the things that they understand and feel that no one else could really, uh, really say. And during all of that, I've always been a card gamer. I I've always been, uh, kind of in the TCG space playing tournaments since I was a kid collecting, uh, football stickers. Um, so for me, it was very obvious that the the card game scene naturally attracted a lot of people who are in the minorities. They don't feel like they necessarily have a home somewhere that they feel to say somewhere they feel safe, a place at the table uh, where they can they can be themselves. And I took a lot of time to kind of cover those stories: people traveling to tournaments who have disabilities, people who um, maybe didn't have the the easiest way to explore and enjoy their hobbies. And a lot of what I saw very much motivated me to move into the gaming industry in general and kind of step away from primarily being in film and TV. So I started working for my local game store. 
um, and a couple of local game stores doing things like working comic cons and and all this kind of that kind of stuff uh daily website day to day organizing events all the stuff you would expect from from the places that we go to play card games because uh, it, it just became about building communities it, those safe spaces are more important than they ever have been um as far as i'm concerned uh and unfortunately um i reached a point with the store that i was with after a few years that i didn't feel like they were treating their staff particularly well um and they were underpaid um the community wasn't being taken care of in the way that it was supposed to be uh and i i finally raised my voice i stopped being a yes man um made made my case for what needed to change and their response to that was to ask me to leave and and to, to fire me and step away from from the business and it kind of lit a fuel under me that I, if I firmly believe, and I truly believe that it can be done better. I have to be the one to do it better. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm not in a position to just dump a monetary sum and open up my my own gaming cafe. I don't I don't have the funds to do that, but I will eventually. Um, and that's the goal. That is the dream. And I have to work towards that. But I didn't want to step away from the space entirely while working towards that goal and finding the money to make that happen. So I had to find a way to stay in the space and be able to cultivate these communities and still reach the people who needed to have those spaces uh, in a way that wasn't physical while I found a way to make that happen. And so I, I found myself like falling into content creation and and working in that kind of that space um, to make sure I stayed in touch and just bring in people and make sure everybody has, has a place to go. And that's kind of spiraled into what it is now it started as writing on a blog and streaming on twitch with a broken lamp i pulled out of a, a landfill um and now now slowly but surely we've just kept chipping away and, and meeting the right people shaking the right hands and I, i'm lucky enough to get to say that i do it full time and we're getting closer and closer to where we want to be well that's pretty incredible so you went from basically i don't know what it's called in the uk but the hollywood of uk to working at a local game shop creating that community to uh you know that ended poorly but it created this fire in you which is amazing so i mean writing for tcg player that's something that everybody uses how did that relationship come about did they have a posting or did they notice you on twitch and notice the content and they're like hey we'd love it if you came and wrote for us how did that come about uh so uh, originally i don't know if you guys are familiar with the the game marvel snap at all um yeah so originally um i was picked up uh, just before that game released by a company called dot gg they run the website marvel snap zone um which is the largest marvel snap fan site on the planet they have millions of users every month it's a very very big deal um and they were looking for someone to run a youtube channel for them basically do do all the video content obviously i have some experience with that kind of stuff so you, you can do that um, and manage the social media channels, do all the social media style style stuff and the like. And uh, and I, I took on that position, was lucky enough to do it for quite a long time, uh, built the channel up to 20 to 23,000 subscribers um, and was, was happy to call that a, a full-time thing for a while. Um, and eventually I told them I was going to have to step back from that role um, to focus on other aspects that were important. Um, and it was only kind of... At that point, they asked me to start doing more written work instead of video work. So I stepped away from being primarily video focused um, and started writing for the site instead in article form. And it was those articles that eventually got the attention of um, eBay, TCG Player, the whole entity um, in general, um, when they were looking for writers for another card game that I happened to play uh, called the Flesh and Blood TCG, which is um, one I've been playing for quite a long time. Uh, and lucky enough to have competed at world championships for and, and have a have a reasonable pedigree. Um, so when they were looking for new creators, 
I'm, I ticked a lot of the boxes for them in those cases. So they reached out originally for me to write about Flesh and Blood, um, which I was more than happy to step into and diversify the work portfolio. And from there, Lorcana was announced. Uh, and I, I was already very much on board with the concept of getting involved in the game. Uh, and at that point, it's, they're more likely to trust a creator they've already worked with, someone that's already on the payroll to create good work uh, for an emerging game. Um, and so it felt like a pretty natural fit. And that's kind of how we ended up there. So that's a lot going on there of just like you're <laughs> being in the right place at the right time. You're doing the right things. Let's say somebody did want to get into writing for a TCG they were interested in. And like our case, it would be Lorcana. Mm -hmm. Like what steps would you suggest somebody who has that kind of passion to get into that space? What steps would you suggest someone take to work towards that? Uh, so I'm a firm believer in the content creation space. There's naturally going to be some survivorship bias. Um, if you ever ask for advice from someone who is doing it and succeeding, it's always going to be a bit lopsided because they've made it, of course. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to say in those cases that you know, if, you want, if, if your goal is to truly make content as a job, and you don't have to, if you want to make content for make, the sake of making content, there is nothing wrong with that at all. It's, it's a fantastic hobby, but... Obviously, I'm viewing it through the lens of it being a living, and, and that's kind of the, the avenue I'm expecting those people to explore. Um, you, you will have to get lucky. I'm never going to lie to anybody about it, but the, the key is to, to put in the work and be consistent to give yourself the largest number of chances to get lucky. Um, if you're being consistent, you're just increasing the number of times someone is going to find you by chance. Um, so the best piece of advice I can give, honestly, if, you, if you're passionate about writing and you want to get involved in that kind of creation space, you're never going to be ready. You stop waiting for yourself to be ready. Just start writing. You don't have to write about anything. The first work you produce is always going to be your worst. Otherwise, you know, you're not, you're not getting any better. So just, just get the pen on the paper. Start typing away on, on Word. Come up with something. Um, look for sets of eyes that are passionate. If, if you want to send them to me and let, and, and let me know what you think i think of what you're creating please feel free to um but just just get started start start writing some things um i suggest most people kind of host their own blog to begin with tends to be the space that's the best way to do it if you prefer the video medium you could do youtube or something like that um and once you've kind of got that you've got what we call like a show reel of work at that point um, and from there, there's just no harm in firing off those those emails, reaching out to people at the sites that you you enjoy or you respect, and go, hey, look, I've been I've been writing for a while on my own. I, this is the, my quality of work. This is a kind of number of average viewers I'm getting by myself on my work. Would you be interested in maybe paying me for my time and I can write for your site instead? And just slowly but surely building those connections. And they might not have anything for you right now, but that's okay. You've got your name into circulation you can keep writing doing what you're passionate about and eventually a handshake will lead to pen meeting paper so just to follow up to this i mean showing up and creating is definitely the first step that everybody needs to take you mentioned earlier um how when you're talking about your story becoming uh where you are now that a lot of it was just making the right connections was that through like sending cold emails or were you like meeting people because yeah giving yourself the most amount of chances to get lucky is definitely key, but yeah. <clears throat> knowing the right people is definitely one of those ways to, to get lucky. So how did it, you go about making those sure. connections? Um, I, I'm less of a fan of cold emails, to be honest, they feel less personal. It doesn't, it's not how I operate. I don't think they're necessarily 
completely the wrong approach for some people in in smaller countries that don't have events to travel to or quite as much of a community it's going to be the only option you have um truth be told um but for me i i i was very much an advocate of heading to events for the sake of of networking that was that was very much the goal um so i could head to your you know san diego comic-con style events or or uh, we, we have one over here called the uk games expo the, these kind of things where where people showcase their games vendors are there you know independent stores and lgs's are there um and those are the kind of people you want to meet because at the end of the day if you're trying to create content as a business those are your customers those are the people that you're trying to provide content for and sell a service to so you need to not only know them but also understand what they want understand you know what it is they're they're interested in um and that's that was always for me how i met folks at Ravensburger, how I met folks at, you know, Games Workshop or Wizards of the Coast is, is going to those shows and meeting their representatives and shaking hands, passing over a business card, you know, having a chat. Um, and that, that worked for me. Um, and you'd be surprised how far that goes because, um, all it takes is someone you've, 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 you've got to know and worked with and collaborated with a few times to get picked up by a site like TCG player. And suddenly they're more than happy to put in a good word for you as well. And you're, you're, you're in the book. So it doesn't, it's not always a case of building a direct connection. Sometimes it's building enough of a network and, and, and becoming as much a part of a community as you can. So that when someone else succeeds, they know who they want to come to, to work with um, and, and bring you on board. I think that's gold. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think anybody who wants to get interested in doing this type of thing, you need to listen to that last couple answers a hundred times over. So let's pivot here. Before we hopped on the show, you're talking to us about how every three months you become really busy writing about Lorcana. <laughs> so let me ask you, at what point did you become interested in Lorcana and how did you like how did that transition into you becoming the Lorcana guy for TCG player? Oh well, thank you for saying I'm the Lorcana guy for TCG player. It's uh it it never really gets normal if that makes sense you didn't you didn't you didn't, you didn't expect it to, to go as well as it maybe has been recently um but yeah i kind of briefly alluded to it when we were talking uh, a little bit earlier that um i i was originally picked up by tcg player to write about uh, another card game i'm more known for um the, the flesh and blood tcg i have more results in that space um so they picked me up from a from an aspect of hey you're clearly very good and we know you create good written work um, would you be interested? And that that helped. That you know, but turning up and doing well at tournaments will create those opportunities for you, much like shaking hands at a show, because people are interested in people who are clearly know what they're talking about and and are good at that event. Um, so when Lorcana was about to launch, um, it's I'm a, I would say I'm somewhat of a Disney guy. I'm not a massive Disney aficionado, but I I grew up with with films and Disney IPs. I'm a huge sucker for Treasure Planet. For anyone who who. Uh, has yes. read read my recent work. Uh, I blind called the fact we would get a morph enchanted and was ecstatic when we did. Um, so I had a passing interest, um, somewhat at least. And at that point, TCG player kind of turns around and goes, hey, you're already on the payroll. We know you create good stuff. Um, if you're interested, we can pay you a slightly lower rate to, to create some you know, original uh, first attempts at stuff. And we'll see how they go. We'll see if they're popular. We'll see if they're, they're that kind of stuff. And... Um, as I say, when you when you're working freelance and trying to kind of work full time in content, you're not really in the business of turning down work um, when you're getting things going. So I was never going to say no, whether the whether Lorcana really grabbed me or not. It was always going to be a case. We'll give it a go. We'll pick it up. See if the game grabs us and creates some work. And thankfully for me, I just I just really kind of fell in love with the game way more than I expected myself to. Um, to be honest, 
and uh, and then it, the, the content kind of naturally thrives. I think it's important to say that if you want to, if you have a limited time to create content, you need to create it about the things that you are personally passionate about because your work will be better as a direct result of clearly giving a, a, you know a, a, a second thought about what you're uh, you're writing. Um, and I think that really helped my early Lorcana work flourish and feel very natural um, and, and have some of my personality to it. And that's that's kind of how that relationship blossomed from there. Um, TCG Player was very happy with the numbers and, and what I was putting together. And if you're keeping management happy, they're going to start reaching out to you to do more stuff because they they you, know, you're, you are the most reliable person to do so. So we've ended up in this situation where my editor, um, his name is Jason. He's a lovely individual. I have the pleasure to, pleasure to work with. Um, he'll reach out to me when a new set releases and go, well, here's the calendar. Here's all the things we want. Here's what's already been taken by other writers. What do you want? And my answer is the rest of it, please. Um, and I, I, will, I will take off as many boxes as I can. All right. So speaking of the articles and all of them that you've written, uh, one of the things that uh, it seems like you like to do is find those little texts that people may have missed at first glance. Uh, how do you find those? And uh, is it where you you play test them so that you can make sure that you're you know speaking from uh, experience or do you like to try and find them and then see how they work or just put them out there and let people figure out if they work or not. <laughs> um, it's a real spectrum of both. I tend to find really, um, you're right. I, I have kind of gained a bit of a reputation over the years for being a bit of a brewer. Um, I I'm a competitive player. I have high level tournament success in a lot of different card games, but I don't like doing it with the good deck really. Um, my life would be a lot easier if I did, and sometimes I will. You know, if, if, if we're playing a world championship, maybe it's a different story. You you, you swallow your pride a little bit. Um, but I, I do like to be able to put my own spin on things and turn up with curveballs, because one of my favorite feelings in card games is just playing a card, and my opponent goes, what's that do? Like, that's, that's one of my favorite moments, personally. So I explore a lot of those avenues when it comes to deck building and when it comes to brewing, because that's the response i want that's the reaction i want it's the feeling i want i want to see that spark in the eye as my opponent realizes what it is that i'm trying to do and that it's far too late to stop me um and and that's that's incredible so a, a lot of it comes through you know sometimes i'll put out an article and go hey look at this synergy that i think i figured out fair warning i haven't tested it yet it might be garbage um and then sometimes i have had more time to sit there and play and those are really where it comes to eye in and out whether you think you're correct or not. Um, if, you, if you're the kind of person who wants to find hidden gems in card games, you've got to be willing to smash your head against the wall for hours and be wrong a lot. Um, they say kill your darlings is, is the way to put it, right? You can you can fall in love with a concept or a card and think you're very clever and it's just terrible uh, and you, you've got to swallow your pride when you're wrong. Um, but you can you can sit there and think, for, for I guess the simplest kind of example I can give Um if we're in a meta game that's very dominant with Maui hero to all as one of the cards you expect to see everywhere as a Ruby card, well, suddenly every single card with seven willpower starts looking a bit more promising. And then we can kind of go through that bucket list of cards and, well, is there anything here that's good against something else that is maybe solving another problem that my deck has? Um, and that's kind of how you reverse engineer those situations. It's, well, oh, my, my Emerald deck is losing to be prepared all the time. Well, what can I find to fix that problem? Does it fix any other problems? Does it create a weakness I didn't have before by fixing a different problem? 
Can I play something else to shore up that weakness? And it just becomes a checklist as you start ticking these things down. And then you can sit down and jam a bunch of games and see whether you were right or wrong. Do you think your history in other TCGs like Flesh and Blood helps you kind of like start thinking through those and identifying more of those combos? Absolutely. Um, I think there's a lot of cross compatibility between card games in general for a fundamental skill set. Um, there's good. There's you know no gameplay is the same. There's a lot of differences to learn, but you you get used to evaluating cards quickly. Um, especially in my case, where now that I create so much content and people want to read about Into the Inklands cards before they release, so I don't even have time <laughs> to really sit down and play with them as much as I like. So I've got to be able to look at them at a glance and go. Is that going to be good? What situations would I want this in? Um, but I just think the more you do it, the more fluent and better you will get at it. Um, and I think people that have come from other card games, they've just got a head start on that. They're used to evaluating cards in a vacuum uh, ahead of time. So they are further along that process of being able to tell if something is good or bad at a glance. Yeah, Lorcana is my first like actual TCG that I'm really involved in. But along with Lorcana, I've kind of been talking with people about Magic the Gathering and mm -hmm. now Star Wars Unlimited that's coming out here yeah. soon. <laughs> and I've already started to be able to make some of those connections between, oh, like that card in Lorcana is kind of like that card in Magic. Or, yeah. hey, that effect is like this one. And I, I love seeing those connections, and I can see why it would be really useful to have other TCG experience when evaluating cards. It's, it's actually a, a game I love to play with friends when I'm on road trips to events. Um, because I have the, the, the joy of playing so many different games over the years, be that physical card games, digital ones, when you work for a local game store, you need to be able to teach people to play everything, even if you're not particularly passionate about the game itself. So you've, you've dabbled in most things. Um, so when I'm, let's say I'm traveling to a Locana event, I love to be able to sit there in the back seat with friends and show them cards from different card games and be like, is this good or bad? You know, was, was this was this incredible or a flop? And then vice versa to other card games. I can show them Lorcana cards when we're traveling and trying to, I, I love seeing the differences in mentality between card games where drawing seven cards in Pokemon is kind of okay. It's, it's, it's good, but it's not particularly strong. But if you show a card that says draw seven to a Lorcana player, they lose their mind because it gives them a whole new world PTSD. Um, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's cool to see the, the different evaluations and what, knowledge is transferable and where the differences actually lie so speaking of that adara alluded to the fact that this is her first tcg this is my first real tcg too i think james as well what has your experience with the lorcana community been has it been you know mostly people like us where most people are new or is it a lot of people like you who are coming from other games and maybe making lorcana their main or they're just dabbling it what's so been your impression of the community so far this, I think it's kind of weird, actually, because I'm finding the answer to that question is a little bit regional, um, which is not something I, I expected, to be honest. Um, I've definitely claimed that Lorcana has lightning in a bottle going for it as a, as a card game in the sense that people that would never have looked at a shelf of TCG products before are suddenly looking at a shelf of TCG products because they recognize the IP, they have a point of connection, um, and it might encourage them to try other games if they find they enjoy playing card games in general but it's there's, there's a lot of people who are stepping in off the power of the disney ip um you know um that can be players like yourselves who are it's your first tcg and you're looking forward to trying it it can be people who have you know long time card game veterans that have always wanted to have a game they can play with their daughter 
that they might also be interested in. You know, there's there's a lot of a lot of different reasons why somebody might pick up Lorcana for the very first time, but there is definitely a, a much larger influx of new faces to Lorcana than there is any other TCG. Um, I I distinctly remember it, um, especially in the UK, when you play so many games, you kind of turn up to local events and you you know everybody. You're used to seeing the same faces regardless of games. And the first time I went to a large Lorcana event in the UK was the first time in maybe 10 years I haven't known who half the room is. Um, and that's a very surreal feeling when you're used to walking into a building and you've met everyone before. You've been to dinner with that person. You've played against that person. You remember when that person didn't have a child. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very unique process. And Lorcana is just so different in that capacity. Um, and it's kind of created this magical harmony of people who are interested in getting into TCGs but love Disney and people who are experienced in TCGs that are so very eager to help those people find the same passions they've had for a very long time. Um, and it creates a very unique feeling um, in a community that I really haven't seen anywhere else. So we already mentioned set three. You've written about it for a while now, it <laughs> seems. What are your initial impressions of it? Um, I think it's becoming increasingly clear as to why Ravensburger didn't want to release a competitive rule set until after uh, set three released. I think there is a very deliberate uptick in complexity, which I think is very clever from a game design perspective. They they knew a lot of the people jumping into Lorcana from set one were going to be new to card games because they, they hadn't picked it up before. So there's no way you could make the set complex. You just lose them all immediately from, from not being willing to take the time or or focus to figure out how it works. So we're, we're slowly seeing that uptick in, okay, you're familiar with the base concept now. We can put another layer on top and then we can put another layer on top. And that's kind of what we're seeing through through locations and even exploring things like resist in set two that are now being expanded on and other keywords and the like. Um, so I think that complexity uptick is is really good. And I think we're also addressing some pain points that, that Lorcana's kind of had to struggle with in the past. In the, in the first two sets, we were all a bit soft to songs. You know, how many complaints have you heard about a whole new world and be prepared and all this over, over the last few months? Um, and we're addressing that in multiple ways. We, we see cards like Ursula Deceiver, who are giving you proactive ways of interacting with those cards and dealing with them ahead of time. And then we're seeing a brand new card type like Locations that can just ignore the fact that Be Prepared exists and allow these aggressive decks to keep extending onto the board without being punished by the omnipresent threat of a Be Prepared. So we're slowly just seeing card design that addresses some of the um, maybe not overpowered factors of the early sets, but the things that create negative play experiences. It's important to note that sometimes a card can be perfectly balanced, but it's just kind of miserable. Um, and that's what I think set three has done a really good job so far uh, at helping to mitigate. And I'm, I'm hoping it stays that way. Oh man, I'm like you. I do not like playing meta decks. So <laughs> be prepared was my freaking nemesis all the time. <laughs> so I'm so happy to have bare necessities and Ursula to just yeet that right out of my opponent's hand. Yeah. And, and this was kind of my... at me for using the word yeet, but. No, it's totally fair. Um, but I think this is something that was a very interesting discussion um, between the more chiseled veterans of, of card games and the people that were newer to Lorcana. Is a lot. Of, I found that a lot of people that were brand new to Lorcana look at a card like Be Prepared and go, oh, what, what was I supposed to do? This is ridiculous. I'm never, ever beating this card. And people who have played other card games remember when their other card games were in their infancy stages and there was cards you just looked at and went, oh, 
I, I can't beat this. What am I supposed to do? And remember the game evolving to a point where the answers came, the counterplay came, the other decision trees came to fruition. And we, we were much more easily able to sit there and go, look, don't worry. Your, your feelings are valid. Yes, be prepared. It can be quite frustrating. Um, but it's teaching you a valuable lesson. If you're getting into Lorcana, you need to know how to play around, be prepared. If you don't have access to the tools to answer it, and then we can teach you later how to correctly use answers to deal with it. And it creates this learning journey for people that are brand new to a card game by teaching both of those steps. Because if you just start with all the answers, you never learn step one and people just don't learn. Uh, so I think it was, it was definitely the right way to do it. Uh, and with that being said, I'm still very glad to finally have some more, more counterplay to the cards in the game. So how, how uh, ironic do you think it is that the two Ursula's both answer the problem and double down on it. I love it. I yeah, I, I commented on it, commented on this in the in one of my articles recently, actually evaluating uh, Emerald's cards for for Into the Inklands. Uh, I love the fact they kind of stare at each other and have immediate counterplay to their their counterpart. Uh, it's almost the universe saying, "No, there's only there only gets to be one Ursula." Uh, you know, one of one of us is coming out on top. The other one is is going to be bulk box filler. And uh, yeah, it, it's quite thematic. I I like the idea that Ursula as a character in Emerald, at least, will always be song centric. And I can definitely see uh, a world where most of the Ursulas we see going forwards just have her caring about songs in some capacity. Um, because I I want characters to feel like they have their own identity. I want them to feel like they do something that no other character in the game does because that's really cool so you kind of talked to us about you know your favorite ink combo you're talking about emerald so maybe instead of talking about that maybe you put on your meta player hat your competitive player and you tell us what ink colors do you think are going to like be the ruby amethyst of set three sure um so of course disclaimer Early days, you know, we're, we're only just kind of getting into to metagame testing. I am one card game playing man on the internet. My opinion is worth exactly however much you want it to be worth. So uh, I, I'm not responsible for anyone spending far too much money on cards. Um, and with, with that being said, um, I think there's a very good chance Ruby Amethyst doesn't go away. Um, I get the feeling that it is still a very strong deck. There is more counterplay to what was going on, but I quite like the lists recently that are a little bit more location-centric themselves, um, including cards like the Queen's Castle, um, RLS Legacy, um, sometimes Jim Hawkins, um, to kind of give those, those decks an alternative angle of attack in that they can also be prepared and still have something left over on the board and have control of the board uh, when they do so. Um, there's a reason it was the best deck in set two by quite a lot. Um, we haven't had enough new cards introduced, so that's suddenly going to not be true. Um, as the deck also got some new toys as well. So it will be up there in the mix, but I'm not so sure it will be far and away the best deck like it was previously. Um, beyond that, I think the real big winner from Into the Inklands so far has been Emerald. Um, I expect a lot of people to be playing Emerald Amethyst um, at the tournament level because it is a very uh, low floor, high ceiling deck. If you're if you're not playing it a ton, it's quite easy to pick up and just do the thing. Um, the the play patterns come very naturally. They're very powerful. It's hard to make too many mistakes. So if you're just looking for a deck that's always going to be good and you don't have that much time to play Lorcana, but you want to compete, that's the kind of deck I expect people to gravitate towards um, that also can reward you for for putting the time in and learning the intricacies of when am I supposed to sing Friends on the Other Side with Ursula instead of singing Mother Knows Best? Is my opponent's board more important? Is drawing four cards more important? Those are the kind of things you learn from, from putting in the repetition 
positions that let the good players really leverage the mirror matches. And then the level above that, uh, I'm currently a really big advocate of the best deck in the game is Emerald Steel. Um, I do think Emerald Steel has gained an awful lot of toys from Into the Inklands that make it a very cohesive deck, but I do think it's quite difficult to play optimally. Um, I don't think the Beast Combo deck is where I'm looking. I think that the combo is quite fragile. I think it's a lot of fun, but not really that great all in all. I think the deck is much better off just being a a good value mid-range deck full of shifting onto morphs and new Robin Hood and, and all this kind of stuff. Um but you are then the player that can make the mistakes. Emerald Steel is very bad at recovering from the mistakes it makes as well. So I think the deck is fantastic, but you really do need to know what your opponent is doing and what cards you should be expecting, or you will get punished in a way that loses you games immediately. And that will be a deterrent for people that don't have all the time they want to smash off games and get the practice in, uh, and maybe make them gravitate towards Emerald Amethyst instead. Um, so that's kind of kind of where I sit at the minute. Give me, give me some good news for my sapphire heart because it's feeling kind of blue right now. Hey, get it because it's blue. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, it's, uh, yeah, it's um, it's a tough a tough life for sapphire at the moment, and I, I say that it's as someone a tough who's life, also, basically the whole life of the game. As someone who is also a known sapphire enjoyer, um, yes, I I sympathize. There is definitely um, some fear. Um, in terms of good news for Sapphire, I do think there's a lot of decks that are worth exploring that people have kind of not gotten around to yet just because they've been so focused on the obviously powerful cards. That, okay, what do I fit into Ruby Amethyst? Oh my god, Morph and Robin Hood are really good. And we'll see the more corner case stuff as people get more time to explore. And a lot of that, I, I'm interested in decks based around the brand new Gramatala, um, who I think has a lot of combo potential in the same way as Jafar. Obviously, everybody very scared of Jafar plus a whole new world. Um, you can do a lot of similar things with Gramatala and Friends Like Me and, and these kind of spells that let you mass ink uh, on the turn that she's in play. Um, I think there's a lot to, to explore there. Um, I'm also interested in exploring some Amber Sapphire lists um, using uh, the brand new Pluto, the seven-cost Pluto, um, alongside Grand Pabby, um, because they work with each other. And every time Pluto heals himself up, you will gain a little bit of lore in the process. Uh, maybe draw some cards from your Rapunzel's. And I think there's just... Uh, if there is a deck there, that deck's going to be very hard to build. There's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of cards that don't do anything if you haven't got everything together. And so it takes time to refine. And that's kind of the feeling I get at the moment with a lot of what Sapphire is being offered. The cards are quite, quite complex. They're going to take practice to figure out where they're supposed to fit. And so we're just not going to see a lot of them in the early weeks if they are good enough, or, or even if they aren't. Yeah, I, I think what we're seeing is that most of, like you said, where Ruby Amethyst is still going to be a good deck. Uh, we're seeing where Ruby Amethyst is just having things teched in or just adding some new cards, but the core that was Ruby Amethyst is just going to stay the same for at least a few weeks yeah. as people figure stuff out. Uh, I, I, think, I think that's good because it gives us a bar to kind of figure out what we need to beat. If we're building decks to try and innovate on the meta game and, and go to that next level, the, the litmus test, if you like, has to be, can I beat Ruby Amethyst? Because if I can't beat that, I'm not going to beat the things that are innovating on top of it. Um, so that should be step one. And it's really good that people are spending time working on refining step one because that's how we get to step two. Right. I think, yeah, and that's that's what I, I wanted to mention is that I don't think that Ruby Amethyst is getting taken down. I think we need to find all the other decks that bring them up to Ruby Amethyst level. 
because Ruby Amethyst is not going is not getting worse. No, <laughs> so, in fact, Ameth Amethyst in general is not getting worse. Um, ever, I think. Ever, I think. Apparently, think one of one of my big grievances, and this is this comes from someone who's a known Amethyst enjoyer as well. I I, I play a lot of Amethyst decks, but there's really nothing that Ink can't do. Um, it does kind of have way more tools available to it currently than everybody else, and uh, I, I I would definitely be more of an advocate of seeing the other inks given the tools to match those tools as opposed to having to make some kind of ban list or decision to knock Amethyst down a peg. But uh, that being said, new card games tend to increase, like t tend to introduce a ban list eventually because if you're not pushing card design, you're not trying really like as a game designer you should be willing to take risks that makes cards more exciting um when you look at big flashy characters i don't want them to be terrible and unplayable because they they should be exciting they're the, the faces of the game um so i would much rather them take risks and design things that are maybe a bit too good with the ability to backpedal on them if they push it a little too far on the dial um and i think there's a good chance we do see that heading into organized play in may um if we if i think i I've, i saw an interview recently with steve from ravensburger saying that they, they thought there was truly two to three decks that were viable in set two i don't agree um but if that's how they felt then fair enough i, I get the feeling if we get to a point where oh it's all ruby amethyst again for the third set in a row their hands are kind of tied and they'll be forced to make a decision that diversifies the meta game heading into uh, competitive play Yeesh. Okay, so speaking of set three, <laughs> uh, is there a card or card combo that you think people are sleeping on, and why is it Perdita? <laughs> um, it's it's hard for me to give a dedicated answer to this because I've I've just finished a series of three articles on TCG Player uh, covering my twenty four top uh, top picks from Into the Inklands. So there's nothing I can really say from the, in this slot that I haven't kind of covered already in that um but padita is up there um i think people if they're like me they they got a bit fooled by snow white the floodborne snow white from from set two and it's easy to look at another amber uninkable six drop that provides incremental value and go i oh, know i've seen you before you weren't very good uh, and immediately immediately write it off and it's, it's easy to forget that Padita provides value when she's played. It's not just when she quests, unlike Snow White. Um, and there are a lot of really good two-cost cards in Lorcana. Um, uh, and in a similar way to how Jim Hawkins is cheating on Ink by dumping a location into play alongside him, it's like, wow, for five Ink, I'm playing uh, 12 willpower and four laws worth of cards. That's really hard to keep up with. Padilla does a lot of the same um, in diversifying your your bodies and threats. And if we if we assume that we're always playing a Madam Mim Snake with Padilla, for example, well, it's a, a six cost three nine that quests for three. Would we play that card? Yeah, we probably would. That would be that would be quite good. Um, and that's how I try and view Padita. And I think more people will over time. My my only concern with Padita is she's really bad into kit um, from em Emerald's kit that uh, bounces away to two or less power uh, characters. She's really bad in the face of kit. Um, and if uh, Emerald is really the deck to beat, I expect to see a lot of kit. And that might very well keep Padita in check until uh, he goes away a little bit. Yeah, but you can have... How many two cost characters in your deck and they can only have four kits 
this is true, but I promise you they will always be there. Uh, every, every single time you play a Padilla, there will be a kit. And then you'll think you're safe, and they'll pick it up with a Madam Mim Fox, and they'll kit you again. And, uh, and then you've spent two turns spending six ink on Padilla, and they've been questing while putting it back in your hand, and that's not a winning formula. Um, and that, that's my only real concern with the card, um, is that there, there might very well be just a bit of a hostile room to her, for a while if, if emerald is is truly up there in the meta game but the card itself is very powerful and i don't think enough people are talking about it yeah because I, I, one thing I, I probably pointed this out but it's it's the first card in lorcana that puts a character into play from discard mm -hmm. yeah yeah for sure it's it's an effect we haven't seen before um and it's also just very flexible um i think is is kind of what's being missed um thanks to just kind of the diversity of two drops in lorcana there's a silver bullet for most things that you want to do. If you if you want to build a deck that can Padita for various reasons. If all you want to do is quest for lore, you grab Piglet or you grab Pinocchio, Simba, any of these things. If you need a quick heal, you can grab Snow White. If you need a target for your Rapunzel gifted with healing, you grab Mother Gothel. Um, you know, that, that if you want to rebuy your Hades, you grab Madam Mim Snake. There's just a lot of things that you can do with a two-cost card. Uh, and it, it definitely encourages you to play these styles of decks where I can burst onto the board early with all these one- and two-cost cards, make my opponent sweep them away, and then have a, a banished pile full of all these different options I can pluck out of nowhere to solve whatever the problem might be. Uh, and I think that's what makes Padilla very exciting. And there's a lot of deck-building uh, decisions to be done there. And is a, a single copy of this two-drop particularly worthwhile? Do I want one Chernobog's followers so I can draw cards off my Padilla? Do, or is that one spot better spent on something else and those are the kind of things we'll find as we play seven million games to to refine exactly what the the details are supposed to be uh, and we'll see exactly where she lands without the leading question was there anything else like <laughs> <laughs> um i think there, there are a few cards i'm not really seeing as much hype around as i expected i think one that stands out to me is the steel john silver the three cost uh john silver that gets more resisty and uh and law questy um as you play more locations um i've been a really big advocate of cogsworth grandfather clock from from uh set two for a while i think the card is just massively under respected and it stuffs steel in a box um and john silver very much gives me similar vibes in the sense of well what are you gonna do about it um there's this, this big character that is is really tough and resists buckets and you can't really clear it and that would be fine if you had the time to deal with the location but you don't because he quests for five um and that's kind of the the vibe i i get from john um i also want to give a small shout out to magic carpet the the two cost magic carpet uh from the set i don't think the card is going to be format defining or, or game warping or anything but the best thing you can do in card games is cheat on resources cheating on resources um and that's exactly what uh what magic carpet lets you do uh by moving things to locations and not spending the ink it would normally cost you um and i thought it was going to be a bit of a joke and i've lost to it a lot and that deserves being mentioned so we'll, we'll chuck magic carpet in there as well i think the moral of the story is you have a series of articles coming out covering the top 24 <laughs> 
<laughs> under youth cards. So make those, sure to those go are check actually that out yeah, those, those are actually all out already. If you're if you're interested in in uh, in my my picks for best cards in Into the Inklands, all three of those are out currently, um, and they'll be followed very quickly by two upgrade guides for the new starter decks. So if you are brand new to Lorcana uh, and you're given this podcast a listen for the first time, you've picked up a deck out of the box and you want to know uh, where you should be spending your pocket money to make it a little bit better. Uh, those will also be on the site in the next couple days, depending on if my editor likes me or not. I'm feeling pretty good because the Perdita and John Silver were two of my picks for uh, best cards <laughs> in the set that people aren't really paying attention to. There you go. There you go. Happy to uh, reinforce those opinions and be horribly wrong with you later. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so changing gears just a little bit. We are expecting official announcements for that organized play coming up here really soon now. They said to kind of watch for them in in March for hopefully starting in May. What are you hoping to hear from like the big official organized play announcements? So I've got two things and these kind of come from just being involved in organizing card game events over the years and having experience with a lot of different organized play systems. Um, and there are two things I personally think Lorcana really needs to thrive on the competitive circuit. Um, one of them is great to hear. The other one is kind of a necessity to facilitate success. Um, the first, if anyone is familiar with Pokemon, they have uh, tiered systems of play. Um, so they they let you play in different age brackets. Um, so you have a juniors division, you have like a, a medium division and a seniors division to kind of separate out age brackets. Uh, for a game like Lorcana, I think this is a really good decision and would be a really a great step in the right direction to kind of be influenced by that uh, that that structure. Um, if you'd like your you know premier events, your world championships and stuff, to, to, to ignore that, I totally understand. I think if a, an eight-year-old, nine-year-old qualifies for world championships, it's probably fair game. There's probably okay to have a, a level playing field uh, in that case. But at a regional level, a store level, um, you really want your players who are newer to TCGs and especially the young children who are kind of getting involved for the first time not to just turn up and get pasted um, because that's very rarely what they're looking for. That There are exceptions. Some kids love smashing their head against the brick wall until it finally sticks and they earn that first win and it feels fantastic, but mostly they don't. And uh, it's probably for the best to give them uh, a place when they can not only meet friends of their own age, kind of build their own small communities, but feel like they're not massively outclassed by people who are happy to buy six booster boxes on release weekend. Um, and I, I think that's, uh, no, 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 it's definitely not me either. Don't worry about it. No idea what you're talking about. Um, but I think that's a really big step for me in terms of the beginning kind of steps to competitive play to make sure that uh, it launches off the ground. The other one, as much as it's not particularly fun to say, is prize money. Um, and I find this from looking at other card games who do not offer cash prizes for their, their organized play circuits. Um, it's a massive deterrent to encouraging people to travel because they can't cover the cost of their trips and, and make their money back. They can't rationalize the expense. Um, and for Yu-Gi-Oh players, for example, they, they don't want to sell their fifth PS5 of the year because that they've got to try and make their money back somehow. It's not a fun experience. And if we are trying to attract the competitive audience from other card games who do travel and compete, and that's the aspect of TCGs they enjoy, it is about that pedigree. It is about having something to really chase and compete for. And so a reasonable prize pool does have to be there to attract that audience, I, I think. I think that's interesting since uh, Ryan Miller's already said that they're not 
keen on cash as a prize. Yeah. It's. I think it's fair, and honestly, I, I understand. There are reasons why you wouldn't want to be. Uh, it causes some issues in certain countries with gambling laws, um, so you, holding holding events for cash prizes becomes a bit difficult. Um, there's a lot of logistics. At the, at the end of the day, people like you and me are never going to be privy to because we're not paid enough to figure that out. Um, but I do think, at least from, from experience and from the kind of players I, I've met across uh, many games over the years, you'll you will lose a fair amount of that competitive audience if there's not something to play it doesn't have to be too much i mean star city games is having success at the moment running 1k's 2k's 5k's across their their circuits and that that's encouraging people to come out and and play for prize money um but uh it, it's a toughie i think to incentivize people who are driven by TCGs not driven by disney to travel from the uk to florida to compete for a pin um, mm -hmm. You know, and that that's that's kind of the the line for me is to how global a competitive scene Lorcana will have is how willing they are to incentivize people to travel cross country, um, or whether it will be very region specific play. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. Back to your first point, I really hope they do the age brackets because my son um, lives back in Idaho with his mom, and they go to Lorcana every week. But it's just like when he comes up against these adults that have meta decks, like I just yeah. wonder right now he loves the game and he adores it. But how long is he going to enjoy just getting mm -hmm. crushed yeah. week after week? Like, yeah, I, 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 I'm kind I'm of hesitant to ask him. I was like, how did League go this week? Because <laughs> I'm afraid for him to be like, oh, I went on three. He always talks about getting smashed by people through Ruby Amethyst. And right now he's not deterred, but if it stays that this way, I don't know how long come. that interest is going to stay. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is why it's so important to iron out what you expect from your competitive scene, and not just for the health of competitive organized play, but for the health of your casual play circuit as well um, at, at local game stores. Because if you're if you go too hard on the competitive scene, suddenly you have walls of players turning up to your your local game stores which is great for attendance numbers but it does mean that everyone is hyper competitive playing the best decks all the time and every room is basically a playtesting camp as people try and get ready for for premier play um and the only way you mitigate that is by putting something like an age bracket system in place um to kind of make sure that people aren't deterred or getting beaten up by people who aren't trying to play the same type of lorcana as they are um and yeah as i say it's I'm very willing to say they're both just my opinions um, from from experience, and I'd love to have a chat with with Ravensburger about it if there's something they were interested in. Um, but I I think what happens will mostly depend on what they're hoping to get out of their organized play circuit um, and whether they want it to be a regional success or a global smash hit. Awesome. So you've given us a lot of really great advice already but Thank we you. always like to ask fellow content creators if there was one piece of advice you give to somebody who is doing their own content creation what would your piece of advice be one one piece of advice is a heck of a question um i'm very guilty of giving a ted talk more than i am one piece of advice um i would say stop viewing other content creators as your competitors um it's one of the biggest things i see in the youtube space in the twitch space you're not competing for the same viewers you can they can all be fans of all of you and if one of you succeed and someone else is succeeding and their viewership is going up well the game is getting more popular which gives you 
plenty of opportunities to succeed yourself. You are much better off building those bridges, shaking those hands, looking to collaborate, working with people. Um, and even if you don't want to socialize and work with other creators, studying what they're doing well, you know, figure if, if someone is succeeding in the space and you aren't, it's because they're doing something that's working that you might not be doing. So take the time, view their work, enjoy their content, um, you know, see if there's something you could be doing that is clearly very appealing that you're, you're not, but don't victimize those other creators or bash them for their successes or put them down or, or not support them in any way, because that stifles growth of the thing that we all care about. You, we are all going to succeed together or all fail together. If we're creating content about the same game, you are allies, not competitors. I am not super familiar with the like, uh, YouTubers, the ones that do gameplay, but I will say most of the other content creators, I am on a pretty friendly basis with, and they're yeah. all super friendly. And <clears throat> most people, if you ask them a question, are more than happy to reach. They'll shake your hand. I mean, not reach. They're more than happy to help. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think that's great advice. Yeah. I, I will say that Lorcan has been pretty good for it. And I think that's that's very natural for a community that's quite young. A lot of people that are stepping into the creation space are, mm-hmm. are brand new to content. They don't have previous scorn or haven't been stabbed in the back by a creator in a different game and, and wants to exact their revenge. And that helps because people are still willing to believe the world is a good place. Um, all, all I will say is if you are in a position to help somebody with their content and help them improve and you don't, that says something about you, not about them. If you ask for help and they won't help you, that says something about them, not about you. Um, and so carry yourself the way that you wish to be treated. And if somebody does take advantage of how passionate you are, try to look at it more as a lesson learned than a reason to be spiteful. Perfect. Well, Shall we move into ending segments? Sure. Uh, So we have a little bit of news. As we mentioned, uh, there was an interview with Ryan Miller uh, where he uh, gave some good answers about things, uh, about the game and what's been happening and what's coming up. Uh, That interview, I think, is, was it uh, Kellett from France? Uh, Uh, Yeah, I think think that's right. Username. Um, It's on YouTube. Uh, there's, There's been plenty of links to it. Uh, I think two things that I pulled from that are, uh, one, he mentions the location Beast Castle, and we don't have a Beast Castle in the game yet. <laughs> so, nice stop reading there. too much into things. He, listen, he's he's just talking, and you know there's things in his head, and those things are going to come out. Because Fro- you know, Freudian slips are how we all get ahead now. Come yeah, on. they're already on like, like seven, eight, nine. I there's guarantee been... you, some of the other things he said also names of locations. You just haven't figured that one out yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's gonna be a come on. There's gonna be a beast castle. It's it's so iconic. It has to be in the game. It makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing was at the end, uh, he talks about sideboards, and based on that uh, question and answer, it sounds like sideboards are not coming anytime soon. And he honestly, didn't, he didn't rule him that. out. Yeah, I, I really love that. I, I've been quite vocal about this in Lorcana as someone who has played games with sideboards and without them. Um, mm. And that the power of Lorcana is whether your cards are inkable or not. And I really love being able to include inkable sideboard cards in my in my deck in Lorcana because I can play a card like you have forgotten me and against the control deck, it's going to be really good. 
and against an aggro deck, it's still ink. It's, it's okay. I'm allowed to, to have those those silver bullets built into my deck. I don't need a separate board of cards to make them work. Um, and I think it's really great design space to encourage people to explore inkable corner case answers to really niche issues um, in their main deck, as opposed to giving them a whole extra area they can they can dedicate to uninkable versions and make those cards look silly. So I'm a really big fan of that decision, actually, and I, I hope they stick to it. Yeah, I like the fact that that's an answer as to why there aren't sideboards instead of just we don't like sideboards or yeah. we, mm-hmm. you know, that's the action. That's the answer why they don't like sideboards in this particular game. Yeah, uh, I think that's about it. Uh, we are expecting. They said we would get um, the set championship for stores uh, information this month, and this month is now two days from o- a day and a half from over. Well, when you're listening to this, it is over. So maybe we will have the news by this point. Um, but we're going to get information because those are sp- supposed to start next month. Uh, yeah, or, I'm looking right? forward to getting asked to write an article about that. It's going to be great. <laughs> and then <laughs> next month, we're getting the news about uh, about uh, the May championships. And so lots of, lots of good stuff coming. Lots of good stuff. Uh, that's about it for news. Are we going to quiz on some Disney trivia? Because I don't have any in front of me. So I didn't prepare because I just woke up like an hour and a half ago. <laughs> We're going to forego Disney Jeopardy this week because it's really early in the morning and James and I did not get our trivia prepared. Um, But again, wrapping up, we just want to thank you so much for coming on, Scott. This was a great episode. There's so much in here that I think people are going to find valuable. Um, If people want to find you, we talked about TCG player a lot, but go ahead and plug where people can find you and um, what they're going to get from you. Yeah, of course. Um, so if you're looking for me personally, you want to listen to the rambles of a card game playing uh, obsessed British man, uh, you can follow me at Howling Minds on Twitter or X, um, which is where I spend most of my time waffling into the early hours. Um, if you're not interested in me as a person, you can find my work on primarily TCG Player um, as a website on TCG Player Infinite. Um, if you want to look at some of the other card games that I work on, uh, I, I've worked on stuff for Marble Snap at Marble Snap Zone and CCG Hub. Uh, I write about flesh and blood for channelfireball.com. Uh, and when I get time, occasionally, uh, I will make video content for Lorcana over on YouTube at Beyond the Inkwell as well. So you can find me in all kinds of places. Uh, and as I kind of briefly alluded to earlier, if you are getting started on your content journey and you want tips, tricks, or someone just to read over your first drafts of articles, just drop me a DM. My DMs are open. Uh, I might not be the most punctual, but I will certainly give you a fresh advice. It's all about making that contact. And uh, you would be a great contact for people to make. Um Again, if you liked what you heard, you can follow us on YouTube. You can subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice. You can follow me on the website, formerly known as Twitter, at Citizens of Lorcana. And Adara, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter at OCHEM102 and Discord as Adara of Lorcana. And Adara is the most helpful person. There's a reason why she's called the Lorcana Clerk, because she always has the answer at ready. So another great contact for you to make. And James, where can they find you? Uh, You can find me everywhere online at Dan Regal. And uh, thank you all again for listening. And we'll see you next time.